Good morning. I walked in last night and I looked at the flowers and I thought, wow, don't they look gorgeous? Yeah. I don't know who put them together, but they're beautiful. Amen. Well, this morning we are in the middle of a mini-series within the book of Acts. We have been studying Acts now for uh, several months. Uh, last week we looked at the gospel and offensive message. This week we're looking at the gospel and unwavering commitment. Next week we will wrap up this little mini-series and we'll look at the gospel, a respectful messenger. The book of Acts is the history of the birth and the growth and the spread of the Christian church. So naturally, we would find a lot of firsts in the book of Acts. The first sermons, the first converts, the first council meetings, the first battles, at least intellectual and spiritual battles. Uh, we have the first martyr in the book of Acts. Peter and John are followers of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, they drag before the Sanhedrin, this powerful ruling body in Israel. And they're questioned about a beggar that was healed. And they aren't questioning the healing, they're questioning in whose name and in whose power did you do this healing. Last week we looked at how offended the religious leaders were at the response from the apostles. And I told you last week that being offended by the gospel is not necessarily a bad thing. We need to receive that offense to our spirit, that check in our spirit when the teaching of God's word checks us, arrests us, offends us. And we need to examine our lives and take that to the Lord. So this morning we look at an unwavering commitment. I want to start where we started last week in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus talking to his disciples says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And some, and some of you are saying, Lord, sign me up. I want to be dragged before courts and flogged. <laughs> I want to be dragged before kings and governors and be forced to defend my faith. No. But would we lie? To avoid that? Would we compromise our stand in Christ? Would we kind of waver in our commitment so that we are not dragged before kings and governors? As believers, you and I are ambassadors of Christ. We carry the gospel with us through our words, through our deeds, through our testimonies. At times, the pressure is great for us to stand firm. We live out our faith in the public square. We live out our faith among people and friends and co-workers and bosses who might be hostile to what we believe. For 2,000 years, Christians have been dragged before these courts, been dragged before kings and governors and councils to defend their faith. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, have died in the process. In Acts chapter 4, we see this clash. But it's not just between the Sanhedrin and the apostles. On the one hand, you've got the Sanhedrin that are 
that are saying we have to keep doing what we've always been doing, the old system has worked, we're going to keep the status quo. On the other side, we've got the apostles that are saying there's something new. God has brought out the new covenant. We celebrated that this morning. The new covenant has begun. But what we actually have here is a clash between what God is doing and those that would be opposing it, hostile to it. I want to tell you about such a clash about 1,500 years after Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. October 31st, this past October 31st, marked the 501st anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, at the age of 22, was visiting his family. He had just graduated with his master's degree, was about to start law school. It's something that his family had encouraged him. His father might have insisted he go into law school. And so he was celebrating this transition in his life, and on his way home from visiting his family, there was this horrific storm. And Luther was petrified. And there was lightning and thunder everywhere, and he started praying out to God and the saints, rescue me, rescue me, and he made a deal. If you rescue me from the storm, I will enter a a monastery and study for the priesthood. Well, Luther was saved from the storm. He didn't die in the storm. So true to his word, he immediately followed through and he, he entered a monastery and his father was furious. But Luther stayed the course and he studied to be a priest. But there was something inside of him that was restless. He couldn't find peace with God. He, he, he would uh, study and fast and he would even beat himself sometimes and go on pilgrimages and go through rituals, and and there was this unsettled spirit inside of him. He even wrote in his journal sometimes about that God hates him, and he hates God. His mentor tried to advise him and counsel him. One day Luther was reading in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, six words that changed the course of Luther's life and arguably changed the course of history. The just shall live by faith. And this just lit up a spark in Luther. And he started preaching, the just shall live by faith, not by rituals, not by deeds, not by counsels. We do it for God's glory, not for the glory of men. And that God's word is the ultimate authority on earth. Not bishops, not popes. The church didn't like that. (laughs) They ordered Luther to stop, but he wouldn't. And so Luther compiles a list of 20, um, 95 issues he had with the church. Some of them were procedural, some of them were government, some of them were serious theology. And he posted or distributed those 95 theses, we call them in history. Uh, there's dispute whether he posted on a church door or distributed to co-workers or colleagues. But Luther's 95 issues became the start of the Reformation, October 31st. 1517. Four years later, Luther was ordered to appear before what was called the Diet of Worms. A diet in those days was a meeting, ecclesiastical meeting of the Holy Roman Empire. The might of the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, was going to be present. And Luther was ordered to appear before it in the city of Worms. Pronunciation in German is Worms. 
And Luther thought this was a cool thing. He was going to be able to go and uh, defend his faith. He was going to reason with the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. That wasn't going to be the case. They laid out his books and said to him, Luther, are these your works? He said, yes. They said, recant. Take back. Deny it. So Luther tried to reason with them, debate with them, and they shut him down, and they shut him down. No, recant, recant. Luther asked for the night to think about it, pray about it. So they agreed, and he came back the next day, the same thing. Luther, are these your works? Recant. And Luther said these words. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Luther took a bold stand, an unwavering commitment to stand firm on the gospel. 1,500 years earlier, we have Peter and John doing the same thing. Do you recall what the offensive message was that I read last week? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Today we continue what happened in that council meeting recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The word uneducated there does not mean stupid. It could be translated illiterate. We know that doesn't fit the context because we know Peter and John were not illiterate. But it does mean no formal education. As young men, they would have had some training in the Old Testament law, but they weren't wealthy, they weren't a line of priests, so it would have been limited. In fact, their family business was fishing. So at a young age, they would have been taught to fish. They're uneducated, they're not ignorant. The word tells us that they were common. A better translation for that word would be untrained. They were laymen. They were amateurs. And yet they were standing before educated Extremely well-educated individuals. The word tells us that the religious leaders were astonished. They were awestruck. Even though they hated the message, they were awestruck with the conduct of the messengers, these uneducated, untrained men. The religious leaders were probably used to people coming before them, being accused of crimes and having these people grovel, plead for mercy, confess their sin. They're not getting that from Peter and John. There's no aggression, no groveling, just a firm, unwavering commitment from ordinary, uneducated men. Men who are willing to stand firm, pay the price, to be counted. And so how is it then that uneducated, ordinary people can stand firm under such pressure? Well, the answer is right there. They had been with Jesus. They had lived with Jesus. They understood his lessons. They received his rebukes. They heard his stories. They watched his boldness. They witnessed his life. They had seen 
the resurrected Jesus, and they could not deny it. If a friend of yours says to you that they are going to die, and that they will come back to life in three days, and that friend of yours dies, and they come back to life in three days, you probably will listen to them. Peter and John lived with Jesus. They heard him predict his death. They heard him say, I'm coming back. They saw him after the resurrection. There's no way they were going to deny what they have seen and what they had heard. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The word there, notable sign, suggests first-hand knowledge. This isn't legend that was passed down about some beggar that was healed years and years and years ago. No, they knew the beggar. They had seen the beggar sitting at the temple, day after day, week, month, year after year. And now the beggar standing right there healed. They cannot deny the miracle. But yet they're trying to shut down the message. But what if? What if it's true? What if Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be? What if he truly did? rise from the dead, as the evidence suggests. What if the boldness of Peter and John is not some ill-guarded fanaticism, but it's real, it's something powerful, it's something that's hard to explain, maybe mystical, but something so very real that's going on in their lives. What if God Almighty is bringing a whole new way of living our faith? What if he's bringing a whole new message, a new covenant to the nation of Israel? Will these men just stop and think for a moment? Will they just consider the evidence? A good journalist, a good scientist, an honest seeker of truth goes where the evidence leads. A narrow-minded individual, someone who is not sincerely seeking or seeking after truth, will pick and choose the evidence to fit their own preconceived ideas. And they will tell Peter and John and me and you to keep quiet because they don't want to hear it. Let's read on, verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them or threaten them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them, the word means commanded, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? Do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So on the one hand, we think, well, it's kind of absurd, absurd for them to think that these men who claim to have seen Jesus, lived with Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus, know that Jesus is doing an amazing work in their lives, it's absurd for them to really think that these guys would actually stop talking about something that they are so deeply, profoundly convicted about. However, I want to throw out a thought to you. 
Is there a time when maybe speaking about Jesus might not be the best option? Have you ever heard the statement, preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words? I want to suggest to you that there are times when your living out the gospel will preach far more powerfully than your words. What about a Christian teacher in the public schools? They are not by law, I believe, allowed to initiate conversations about Jesus. They are not allowed to proselytize. <laughs> but yet they love their students and they feel burdened for their lives and they want to encourage them and help them. Living out their testimony will preach volumes to these students without talking about Jesus specifically. What about a spouse, a, a woman who gets saved into a 10, 20-year marriage and her husband is hostile toward Christianity and he forbids her to speak about Jesus in their home? What about a young person who's saved and his parents or her parents are hostile to Christianity? There will be times when your conduct as a Christian is far more powerful than your words. However, if God tells you to speak up, speak up with boldness and with clarity and with respect. We'll deal with this more next week, realizing that there might be significant consequences. There was a lady in my church in South Africa She had a couple of young kids, and our church also ran a daycare. And she had stopped coming for a week or two, and I saw her one morning dropping her kids off at the preschool. And so I went and greeted her and asked how she was doing. And in tears in her eyes, she said, My husband's family is pressurizing me to convert. Her husband was Jewish. She was a Christian. And she loved the Lord. <laughs> and my heart as a pastor just ached for her. How do you counsel somebody in that kind of a circumstance? And I said to her, I said, you have to love your husband. You have to care for him. You have to honor him. You have to cherish him. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about this. But I said to her, you cannot, you cannot deny your Christ. You cannot. Let me flip that thought around. As a spouse... Don't you ever, are you listening, spouses? As a boss, don't you ever, are you listening, bosses? As a parent, don't you ever, are you listening, parents? Don't you ever, 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 I don't care how important that contract is. I don't care how important your reputation is. Don't you ever put pressure on a Christian to diminish or water down their faith. God help us. Young people, don't you ever put pressure on your boyfriend or girlfriend to compromise their faith. The apostles are standing firm. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I want to give you two critical, important principles that I believe we can take from this passage that should guide our thoughts and our thinking, should guide us as parents, as husbands, as wives, as employers. First of all, verse 19, Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God. That's the big issue, isn't it? That's one of the big ones. What is it that's right in the sight of God? Peter is clearly stating that his conscience is held captive by the divine authority of God and that the only recourse for him, the only recourse, the only option for him is to oppose the human authority. No money on earth can buy you a clear conscience. And so the big issue is what is right in the sight of God. A student forgets to do an assignment and lying can buy them some more time. Graduation looms and hangs in the balance. What is right in the sight of God? A spouse is pressured to do something, watch something, go somewhere where no Christian ought to be watching and going and doing. Her marriage hangs in the balance. What is right in the sight of God? An employee is ordered to lie to an important customer about a failed contract. His or her job hangs in the balance. What is right in the sight of God? The dream job comes up, but you know it will require you to compromise your stand on Christ. Your career hangs in the balance. What is right in the sight of God? In 2012, I told my boss and mentor then that I would be spending one last year at my school. I'd been there for 12 years. My daughter would be graduating the next summer, and my wife and I felt that we wanted to change. The Lord was nudging us. We had lived in the frozen tundra of North Carolina long enough. <laughs> I do not like cold weather. I think it's a product of sin, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> that's my theology. And so we started praying, and we started looking for a move, and we were really praying, and I'm not kidding, to move south and east from where we were. And I came across a job in about February, March of 2013 at a Christian school, well, it was a religious school at least, not too far from this one. And I looked at their website, and, and they spoke about faith in God and Christ, and about Bible studies and chapel and about their faith, um, but I knew from the church affiliation that they probably weren't going to be a conservative evangelical school like the one that I was at. I actually spoke to my mentor about it, and we spoke, and he counseled me, and he said, well, if God opens the door, this will be a mission field. So I applied. Through a job agency, I inquired about the salary, and it was very, very good. About three or four weeks into the process, it looked like everything was going well. Friday afternoon, I received an email from the chair of the search committee. They asked me four questions. Three of them had to deal with evolution. And I thought to myself, is this job really going to hinge on evolution? I remember going to my wife, frustrated with this. 
So I, I wrestled over this over the weekend, never once thinking to compromise my faith, but how can I answer these questions, be clear on what I believe, but still leave the door open? So I remember working on this, typing, maybe rambling on <laughs> too much, and I stated very, very clear. Uh, one, one, one of the questions was, do you accept evolution as the best scientific explanation for the origins of life? And this was coming from what seemed on the surface as a Christian school. And so I wrote back very, very clear, I cannot accept evolution. Well, I think I said, I do not believe that evolution is the best scientific explanation for the origins of life. And I hit the send button Sunday night. It wasn't too long into Monday morning that I got the Dear John letter. <laughs> oh, I was aggravated. But you know what? But literally within a few days, maybe a week or two, I learned about Masses Academy. God is so good. God is so good. So the big question before us is, will we do what is right in the sight of God? It's not what's expedient. It's not what's pleasurable. It's not what's going to get us that big contract. It's will we do what is right in the sight of God? I am so thankful that Peter and John did what is right in the sight of God. I am thankful that millions of Christians before me have done what is right in the sight of God. You and I today have faith in Jesus Christ because those before us have done what is right in the sight of God. And others will come after us and put their faith in Jesus Christ because we do what is right in the sight of God. And the challenge this morning is, will you have an unwavering commitment to do what is right in the sight of God? The second principle is taken from chapter 20, I mean verse 20, chapter 4. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That word cannot, now this might sound a bit geeky, and I've never been accused of being a geek, but, but this word, cannot, got me really, really excited at about 5 o'clock on Tuesday morning. I'm not kidding you. I was up early studying for this message, and I read this word again, and I decided to look up the Greek for the word cannot. Now, whoever looks up the word cannot in the Greek, Right? But I looked up this word, and I found out I'd never known this before. The word cannot is dunamai. That's where we get the English word dynamite from. And I immediately knew that that word appeared twice in one of my favorite verses of Scripture, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able, dunamai, dynamite, to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power, dunamai, dynamite, that is at work where? In us. God's power in you, giving you the courage and the wisdom and the strength to stand firm in the gospel. So what Peter was saying to the Sanhedrin, what Peter was saying to this powerful religious group, he was saying, guys, I am unable to deny what I have seen and what I have heard. I am unable to. You can flog me. You can ridicule me, you can threaten me, you can abuse me, you can fire me, you can leave me, you can kick me out of your house. I am, am unable to do what you're asking me to do. It's not just a thing about I can't, I am unable to. There's too much at stake, there's too much that I believe, there's too much that God has done for me. 
for me to do anything different. The Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren calls this obedient disobedience. That's pretty cool. He also calls this irrepressible necessity. I pray that God would give us an irrepressible necessity to stand firm for Him. Why? Why would we do that? Well, it's simple. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. In the long history of clashes between God's people and those hostile to it, in Acts chapter 1, I mean Acts chapter 4, we have round 1. Peter and John stand firm and Jesus wins. Round 2, Acts chapter 5, several months later, maybe a year passes, again the apostles are dragged before the Sanhedrin. They told again, we are told you not to speak in Jesus' name. Peter again says, we must obey God rather than men. This time they're beaten. They're flogged. But they leave rejoicing. Round two, Jesus wins. Round three, Acts chapter six, Stephen, a stone for his faith. Jesus wins. We jump ahead about 300 years, the fourth century. Eusebius of Caesarea would become the father of church history. He's threatened by the emperor with confiscation of his goods, with death, with punishment, with torture. He says these words. He needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. Jesus wins. November 1414, John Huss is tied to a stake in the city of Prague. He's ordered to recant his faith. He refuses. Before he's burned alive, he says, I never preached any doctrine of an evil tendency, and what I taught with my lips I now seal with my blood. Jesus wins. 1521, Luther stands before the Diet of Rome's, standing firm before the mighty power of the Holy Roman Empire, and Jesus wins. 2018, in your world, in your office, in your family, will Jesus win? Because you stand firm. The final round of this clash is recorded in the book of Revelation. Two words sum up the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. Will you make an unwavering commitment to stand firm for the gospel? A young African man was pressured by his tribal leaders to renounce his faith and he refused. After an extended period, he was eventually killed for his faith. And his family, rummaging through his belongings, came across a testimony. There's copies of this at the connection desk outside if you want to pick it up. This young man wrote this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back. Let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. 
I don't have to be right. First, tops, recognized, all rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, and am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till, I know, till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my banner is clear. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Amen. Let's stand, church, and let's respond. Whatever the Lord's doing in your heart and your mind, let him have his way in you as we worship him together. Respond. You can pray up here. There will be prayer partners up here waiting for you. You can pray by yourself. Uh, whatever you need to do by the, by the Lord, do it in this moment. Don't resist. Don't resist his spirit.
are challenged. And Lord, for some of us, that might happen this week. As we gather for Thanksgiving with friends and family who may have much different ideas about life than we do. Oh Lord, may we stand strong, loving, but strong, Lord. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we live it out in every setting that we're faced with at work, at home, in our community at the store, wherever we are, Lord. May we be salt and light for you. And we may we be ambassadors for your gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what that gospel has done in us, for how that gospel has changed our lives completely, forever. So our hope is in you. We give you praise and thanks, Jesus, for allowing us to hear a challenge that brings us closer to you again. In your name I pray, amen. God bless you, church. <laughs>